Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Would you like to contribute to the conversation? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, what condition conversation was in. Jay Talking with Bradley Jay. I listen to morning with the sun up. I'm busy. WBZ News Radio 1030. I tune my radio to AM 1030. The radio's all yours now. I talk to a man whose name is Bradley J. Improved my mind in a wonderful way. I just called in to see what condition conversation was in. Yeah, yeah. You are Jay talking. We're live midnight two five, and we're very happy to welcome back Robert Bob Allison, professor and chair, Department of History, Suffolk University in Boston, and a lot of other stuff we'll get to. Thanks for coming back. Thanks for having me, Bradley. You are the USS Constitution Museum Board of Trustees member and leader of Rev Two Fifty, which is a group that's trying to put together events that commemorate events leading up to the revolution. Yes, exactly. And what do you have coming up next? Well, one, we have a teacher workshop coming up this summer, which was going to look at underrepresented voices in the revolution, African-Americans, Native Americans, women. There's been a lot of scholarship in the last 20, 30 years about the role of African-Americans, women, Native Americans. How do we get that into the classroom? How do we get that as part of the general understanding of what happened? and how the revolution came about. That's really our, one of our goals for this year. Today we're going to talk about Benjamin Franklin. Yes. It's a real speciality of yours. You actually have a, a set of DVDs or CDs, correct? Yeah, from the teaching company who does college courses really for adult learners or people, interested people. And so they had me do a series on Benjamin Franklin. It was great to be able to spend time learning more about Franklin. So there are 24 half-hour lectures looking at different aspects of Franklin's life, his career, his legacy. And you, one can buy these? Yes, yes, they're available on their website, uh, Teaching Company. You Google Teaching Company, Franklin, you'll come up with this. And generally, they're often on sale. They're uh, really, I, I've always been impressed working with the teaching company, the quality of the product, and also the people who then write to me and say, I really enjoyed your course. Excellent. Now, as we dig into Ben Franklin, we're not going to start right at the beginning like I usually do, as I usually do. I want to ask you about Ben in the following way. When you take a look at the founders, the um, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, and part of that's because they each have a, a skill set and an, and an ability and an ability. Jefferson was shy; wasn't a very good speaker, but he could write like crazy. Washington, big, imposing, strong-willed guy, mm -hmm. could get people to do what he wanted to do. And you had Benjamin Franklin. Now, what skill set and role did Benjamin Franklin have and fill? Franklin was an extraordinary diplomat. It was one of his great tasks. His first real diplomatic assignment was an utter failure, going to England to try to get the British government to turn Pennsylvania, take Pennsylvania away from the Penn family, give it to the king. But then he goes to France, and he is a celebrity in the world because of his scientific work. But he had learned over the course of a long life how to get along with people, how to work with people. He was always, I think, the smartest guy in the room, but he never let anyone know that. He developed this way of seeming not to understand, but leading people along. And instead of saying, this is what I think, he would say, well, it seems to me that. He, played, he said, I played the humble doubter. And a part of it was kind of a malicious thing where he would lead someone in by asking questions into more and more absurd consequences. But also it's a way of 
getting people to see things differently. If Franklin were in a group at dinner parties, he would never say anything. He was always very quiet. In fact, Jefferson looked at Franklin and Washington as being the most influential people he had ever worked with in a legislative body, and he said neither one ever said anything in a big legislative body. They worked a lot in committees, but when they did speak, people listened to them. So Franklin had a real quality of being able to reach people because he was often several steps ahead of them. You know, he was a great chess player. In fact, he is in the Chess Hall of Fame. And he wrote a little essay on the morals of chess and how you learn from playing chess not to get overexcited if things are going well or too depressed if they're going poorly and always anticipating what might happen. And in fact, his morals of chess were published in the first Russian book about chess in the 1780s, includes Franklin's essay on the morals of chess, what you can learn from doing this. So he has that farsightedness and also that ability to understand what another person might be thinking. You know, John Adams and Franklin never got along because Adams was very much black and white, New England Puritan, and he thought that Franklin was just botching things in France because Franklin seemed to be really sloppy. And in fact, Franklin's secretary was a British spy. You think almost immediately, boy, your secretary is actually a British spy. That's a bad thing. Unless you know he's a spy. We know he's a spy. Then you can feed him And then Franklin said, well, I happen to like him. And also, occasionally, something that the Americans were going to propose to the French would get to London before it got to the French government. And so the British government would protest to the French government something the French government didn't even know was going to be proposed. And what this did was make the French government think maybe the Americans really are getting closer to the English, so maybe we should step up our support for the Americans lest they go back to the English. That is, it was really, um, I don't want to say having a spy as your secretary is a good thing, but it did cause the French and the English to really be much more careful about what they were doing with the Americans because Edward Bancroft, it turns out, was a spy. Let's go to the early Benjamin Franklin. And he was born in Boston. Born in Boston. One of 13 kids. Yes. And the first I know of him is when he was an apprentice to his brother. But what about before that? Any that, info well, on that early days? Well, he went to uh, the Latin school. The family, he was precocious, very smart. He could not remember a time when he couldn't read. And so the family thought maybe he is the one who can become a minister. You know, his father was a soap maker, taking uh, old fat and mixing it with lye and turning it into soap. Then they made a very high quality of soap. And so, but it's not a lucrative occupation and certainly not a, um, something you would go into after going to college then. It's a necessary thing. And so Josiah Franklin would make soap. And Josiah Franklin, though, was a wise, prudent man, a pious and prudent man, as Benjamin called him later, and was respected, although he had a large family. There were other soap makers in Boston, and Josiah was the poorest because he was the one with the most children, 13 children. Benjamin was the youngest son. Josiah was married twice, and Abia, Benjamin's mother, was his second wife, and Benjamin was the youngest son. And by the time he was born, most of his older siblings were out of the house. He remembered one time when all 13 of them sat at the table together, and it was when his brother Josiah went off to sea. So one brother goes to sea, another becomes a printer, James, another, John, becomes a soap maker and stays in New England. So the family, you don't want all of your children to become soap makers. You have to diversify. Is that Josiah that's buried in the granary? Josiah and Abby are buried in the granary, yes. And... The, the other wife is not. She is probably buried somewhere in that. That's the Franklin family plot. Okay. So, yeah. So she is buried there. She died, and Josiah marries again. I mean, he has all these children, so he marries Abia, who is considerably younger, has a number more children with her. And Benjamin cannot remember, as I said, a time when he couldn't read. And there was an uncle who had taken notes of a lot of sermons, and he sent his uncle, also named Benjamin, sends them to his nephew thinking he will become a minister. And they send him to the Latin school, Benjamin to the Latin school, which is just, a, it's actually where the Franklin statue is now. And in those days, you would enter the school, you would sit in the back row, and as you improved, you would move up. And by the end of his first year, he is sitting in the front row. 
he's passed everyone else. Then the family needs him to go to work because they realize, hey, sending him to school for 10 years is going to cost a lot, and is it really going to be worth it to send him to college so he can become a minister? Probably not. So they pull him out of school, and at first he goes to work making soap, really hates it, wants to run off and go to sea. His father needs to find him a trade, takes him around. He sees different trades, doesn't really like any of them. And finally, James had just come back from London with the printing stock, and so he is setting up as a printer in Boston. And so Benjamin is apprenticed to his brother James. So there's some incident with a smallpox vaccination. Yes. Uh, Mather is for the vaccinations. Old man Franklin is not. Yeah. And then there's some argument going on, and James, the brother, argued in a way that irritated the church, and yes. as a result, yeah. what happens? He, well, he gets actually, his print, James, he James goes to set, jail, right? Yeah, well, he does. James sets up a newspaper for the purpose of attacking Cotton Mather. He calls Cotton Mather a peevish dog and a mongrel and a baboon <laughs> and other things. And um, Franklin, uh, James Franklin describes, um, I'm sorry, Cotton Mather describes James Franklin and his group as a hellfire club. And at some point during this whole controversy, you know, Mather wants people to be vaccinated. And the Franklins take this as crazy. I mean, you're going to take a, vac a virus, or some, they didn't know it was a virus. You're going to take a disease that could kill you and inject it into yourself. And they say, what do these things have in common? The persecution of Quakers back in 1660, the execution of witches in 1692, and the self-procurement of smallpox now, well, Cotton Mather's been behind all of them. And they really castigate Mather. And someone throws a bomb through Mather's window. It doesn't go off. So we know the note attached to it says, Mather, you dog, inoculate yourself with this. Uh, pox on you. That wasn't the Franklin, was it? The Franklins didn't do that. They, yeah. But the James Franklin, yeah, you're right. The, the paper is shut down. He is sent to jail. And he cannot... A, he is told you cannot publish a newspaper in Boston. So what James Franklin does is really smart. He releases Benjamin from his indenture, signs a statement saying Benjamin Franklin is no longer an indentured servant. And another, another document saying Benjamin Franklin is the publisher of the New England Current. So the next issue appears with Benjamin Franklin's name on the masthead. They have a secret agreement that says once James is out of jail, Benjamin's going to become an apprentice again. This is all a farce. And so James gets out of jail, comes back to the printing shop, and says to his younger brother, okay, here I am, you're my apprentice now. And Benjamin says, no, no, I'm the publisher of The Current. James says, no, no, we have that secret agreement. And Benjamin says, are you going to produce that secret agreement in court? Benjamin is extremely smart, and James knows he has him. And James actually goes to their father, who sides with James in this. I don't know, if you have a really smart younger sibling, or if you are a really smart younger sibling, you may understand this dynamic. It infuriates James, and the two of them never really get along, and Benjamin winds up running away. James used to beat up Ben. That's what Benjamin says, yes, yes. And he says this in his autobiography. But then Benjamin also realizes maybe he did James wrong. You know, he does play this trick on him when James gets out of jail. And then when Benjamin goes down to Philadelphia, he runs away from Boston, goes to Philadelphia, goes to work in another printing shop, and comes back, and he comes into James's shop, and he says, hey, you wouldn't believe the kind of money they have in Philadelphia. And he pulls all these gold and silver coins out of his pocket, and James thinks he's just doing this to embarrass me because now he's gone to Philadelphia, yeah. and he's really a big shot. And Franklin thinks, yeah, maybe that was kind of showing off later on. His autobiography mentions these things and occasionally points out something that maybe he did that was wrong. What do you think? Do you think that James had wronged Ben enough so that it was, Ben was justified in that skullduggery of the way he got the, the business and wouldn't turn it back over? Do you think James had it coming? I don't think James had it coming. Right. And I don't think Benjamin does because in about 10, 15 years later, Benjamin now has established himself as a printer in Philadelphia. James is in Newport. I mean, he had to move his printing press to Newport. And he's dying of tuberculosis. And Benjamin comes to visit him. And James now has a son. Benjamin takes James's son to Philadelphia to train him to be a printer. And he realizes, maybe I really had done him wrong. And Benjamin does think more about these things when he's older, when he's writing his autobiography. So Benjamin's down in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And right off the boat, like it's on day one, he's all wet and he runs into this 
Woman. Yeah, yeah. Tell that story. Okay, so he's walking. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No Through the street, he, he doesn't know anyone in Philadelphia, and he describes this in his autobiography. It's one of the great scenes in American literature because he didn't have all he had was what the clothes he was wearing, and his pockets were stuffed with. His socks, an extra shirt, biscuits. Other yeah, and he goes into a store to a bakery because he hadn't had anything to eat for a day or two, and so he goes into a bakery and he all he has, the all the money he has is one dollar, uh, a gold coin and a copper coin, and he asks for a biscuit, and they don't make they don't know what a biscuit is in Philadelphia, and then he asks for a three penny loaf, and they don't have a three penny loaf, so he says, "Well, give me three pennies worth of anything," and he's thinking this is going to be kind of a small like a what we would call a bulky roll. What he gets are these three enormous loaves, and bread is much more plentiful. Things are cheaper in Philadelphia. So he walks down the street, a roll under each arm, and he's eating the other one. He goes down to the river to get a drink of water, and he happens to be walking by a house, and there's a young woman in the doorway who thinks this guy really looks ridiculous, and she starts laughing at him. It turns out this is Deborah Reed, who later becomes Mrs. Franklin. How do you know the extreme details of of a roll under each arm, and uh, is it written down somewhere? It's written in his autobiography. It's this okay. great scene, and he describes this. He writes the autobiography initially as a to his son William. When William had only known William at this time is governor of New Jersey. When Benjamin's writing his autobiography, William is a great success. His father is a man who had made a great mark in Philadelphia, and he says, "I'm being more particular in this, so you can contrast the figure I've since made in Philadelphia." with the way I appeared when I first arrived. And he's thinking about this contrast. And you see this as the story of an immigrant, really, someone who comes here with nothing but can become something. It's really the message Franklin is trying to convey in this. So he meets this woman, was it Deborah Reed? Deborah Reed, yes. And uh, they don't get married. She kind of wants to. He goes, nah. Yeah, right? yeah. He goes off to London. This is another of the things he does wrong. He goes, never writes to her. She winds up marrying a guy who turns out to be a real jerk. Yeah. And Benjamin then comes back. He's had a great time in London. She thought he was dead because he never wrote. She had a failed marriage. She is moping around. And Franklin, meanwhile, is trying to marry someone else. He's going through this very complicated arrangement. He wants more money from the bride's family so he can set himself up as a printer and telling stories about what a good time he had in London, which kind of makes Miss Reed more, more depressed. And then they do want to get married, but here's the problem. Her husband had disappeared. We didn't know if he was dead or alive. Her family thinks maybe he got married in London. So maybe there's some Mrs. Franklin over there who is going to show up. So they can't legally get married because she did have a husband who might or might not be alive, and he might or might not have a wife. So simply in September of 1730, they move in together and announce that they are husband and wife. And then he says that we thenceforward tried to mutually make each other happy. So you mentioned he went to London, Mm -hmm. and as I understand it, that was because somehow he went from rags to knowing the governor, and the governor kind of liked him and said, you know what, I'm going to set you up as a printer. All you got to do is go get the stuff in London. He gets to London, and the governor reneges on the deal. Well, the governor had made this prompt. First, the governor said, why don't you borrow money from your father? So he sends Benjamin back to Boston with a letter recommending him to his father. And his father reads this letter and says, but you're 16 years old. The governor must not have any sense to want to set you up in business. I wouldn't trust a 16-year-old with a business. And Franklin is a little disappointed, but later on he thinks maybe his father was right. But then the governor says, oh, don't worry. I have a, I'll send a letter of credit along. And there's no letter. And Franklin, when, when he gets to London, people say, why did you believe this guy? Everyone knows he doesn't have any credit. So he's stuck in London, penniless. And so he goes to work, goes to work in a printing shop. But yeah, he knows the governor. He also met the governor of New York on his way. He's running away from Boston. And the governor of New York hears from the captain of the ship, there's this kid who has all of these books on board. So the governor of New York invites Franklin to come meet him. 
and to talk about books. So he does find ways of meeting yeah, people. I couldn't figure out if it's just such a small town, it was easy to meet the governor, a small state, or whether there was some charisma that Brent Franklin had that propelled him, just floated him to the top of the, of the society. Well, he always said, his, one of his father's favorite sayings was, seest thou a man diligent in his calling, he will stand before kings. He will not stand before mean men, mean meaning uh, poor men. And Franklin says, my father was right, because I have stood before five kings, and I've even sat down to dinner with one. One thing we learned earlier, and I forgot to make a, a mention of something I wanted to, is that there was a tussle between Cotton Mather and the Franklin family over inoculation, just like there's a tussle over inoculation now. Interestingly, the clergy member, Mather, was embracing the science, and the family that produced the scientists was not. That's that, true. A bit interesting. Yeah, it is. And later on, Benjamin Franklin realized he was wrong. His, in fact, in the 1730s, his son Francis died of smallpox. And the family worried about having him inoculated. And then they realized later that he, he was a little sick, which is one reason they didn't. But then they realized that, uh, you know, one reason you wouldn't is if he gets the smallpox and dies. He says, well, he does die anyway, of getting it in the natural way. So Franklin realizes that inoculation works. And it is interesting that, you know, Cotton Mather was a fellow of the Royal Society, the leading scientific organization in the English-speaking world. And this is how he knew about inoculation, because he had read about it in an issue of the Proceedings of the Royal Society that also carried one of Mather's essays about natural curiosities in America. And when Franklin, by the way, his first real literary debut was as Silent Do Good. Right. He wrote a series of essays. Cotton Mather's most famous book was Essays to Do Good, Bonifacius. And during the whole smallpox controversy, one of Mather's daughters died. And Mather is under this great public attack, and he preached a sermon for his daughter that then was printed as a, sermon, as a book. And it is about what you do when you are under attack from this cruel and evil, sinful world, you maintain a holy silence. So this essay is called Silentarius. I think everyone got that silence, do good, was really a play on Cotton Mather. And so he writes these wonderful satirical essays about Boston. But they didn't know it was Ben. Though. No one knew it was Benjamin yeah. Franklin. His brother thought these were really clever essays. And it's the guise of this middle-aged woman who had been married to a clergyman. Now she's a widow and you know, has a really funny thing about Harvard College where you know, rich children go, rich kids go, and they're, they come out as big blockheads as before, and they learn no more than what they would at a dancing school. And women's fashion and seeing sailors and prostitutes on Boston Common, other things she observes as she's going around town. And Silence Duguid says, I have a great gift at reproving the faults of others and pointing them out, which, of course, is another facet of Cotton Mather. So he runs away and then comes back to Boston in the 1720s when his, uh, the governor is trying to set him up, and he goes to call on Cotton Mather in Mather's house at the North End. And one of the interesting things about Franklin is he knew Cotton Mather. He also, later in life, becomes a close friend of Voltaire. So probably the greatest American clergyman of the Earl of the uh, 17th and early 18th century, and the great French atheist. He also is a close friend of George Whitfield, the great English evangelist, and also of David Hume, the great Scottish skeptic. So he's able to maintain these friendships. But anyway, this visit with Cotton Mather, um, they talk for a while, and then Mather, who's now an old man, is he's in his 80s, is showing Franklin out through a narrow passageway in the house and Franklin has turned facing Mather, and he's walking backward, talking to Mather as Mather is talking behind him. And suddenly, Mather says to him, stoop, stoop. And Franklin doesn't know what he means until his head whacks against a beam. And, Mather, and Franklin writes this in a letter to Mather's son about 70 years later, saying, your father could never miss an opportunity of teaching. And he said to me, you are young and have the world to go through. Stoop often as you go through it, and you will save yourself many a hard thump. So I guess we should get to the, the Franklin of um, the political Franklin and the 
Constitution, the Constitution, Franklin, and the Code of France, Franklin. Mm-hmm. So can I guess uh, we talk about how he was chosen to help formulate the Declaration, correct? He's on the committee. Five, brought up. Gu- five guys, yeah, five people. Yeah, he is one of five guys. And at this time, he really, Franklin goes into politics because of his, he's very good at getting people together, raising money for things, and also he is very, he, he becomes famous as a scientist, as the, and this is what makes him into an international celebrity. And he's gone off to London to try to get the uh, Pennsylvania colony away from the Penn family, that fails, comes back to America, and he's appointed into government positions in Pennsylvania and also to the Congress. So he's now in his 70s and spending basically from six in the morning till 10 at night going to meetings, doing different things. And then as a member of Congress, he's also, by the way, president of Pennsylvania. They make him the president of the, um, the state. And he is a member of Congress and he's put on the committee because he is really a very good writer and editor. I mean, he's probably the most published of these guys who's in the Congress. And so Jefferson is chair of the committee. Adams is on the committee. It was really Adams who gets Jefferson to write the declaration. And then Franklin is kind of an editor. And then Roger Sherman and Robert Livingston are also on the committee. But Jefferson does the chief work of it. And there's a nice story that Jefferson tells later about Jefferson is sitting there as the members of Congress are debating over this uh, declaration, taking this word out, this phrase out, and so on. And Franklin tells him the story of John Smith, who wanted to open a shop to sell hats. And he had a big sign made. There was a picture of a hat. And it said, John Smith, at this address, proposes to make hats and sell them for ready money. And he shows the sign to a friend. And the friend says, you propose to make hats? Are you going to do it or aren't you going to do it? So he says, okay, that makes sense. So it takes out, proposes to. John Smith makes hats and sells them for ready money. Yeah. Someone else says, you know, no one's going to give you a hat on credit. We know ready money, that's unnecessary because if you want to buy a hat, you have to have cash. Okay, so it takes out for ready money. John Smith makes and sells hats. Someone else says, well, if I want to buy a hat, it doesn't really matter to me who made it. So why do you say makes hats? So he takes out, makes hats. So John Smith sells hats. And another friend says, sells hats. I am not. don't expect you to give them away. So that makes sense. So he takes out sells. And now there's a hat, picture of a hat, and the word hats. And someone else says, well, that's redundant. So you take out the redundancy. And you finally you get a sign that is a picture of a hat. Great lesson on writing. Yeah, that's that's and let it on as editing. Yes. All right. Um, what I guess we can from this point have you tell lead the way and what are the important steps and points is uh, good to know about Ben Franklin. Well, key points. For okay. Me. Okay. One of my favorite stories about Franklin. By the way, this might just turn into my favorite stories about Franklin. In 17, he sets up a printing business. He gets married to Deborah, is able then to set up a printing business in 1730. And one of the most profitable things you can do as a printer is do an almanac. And his problem in doing an almanac was there already was a guy, an older, established guy who did almanacs, a guy named Titan Leeds. And Titan Leeds was kind of a media mogul kind of like Rupert Murdoch, and he was suing everybody, kind of an unpleasant guy. And Franklin wanted to write an almanac, but Titan Leeds had already sued a couple of people who had started almanacs. And what Franklin does in 1732, he publishes the first edition of an almanac under the guise of Richard Saunders, who becomes known as Poor Richard. And Richard Saunders writes this little preface to his almanac about how... um, For years, he's been compiling charts of tides and lunar cycles and so on. And my wife says, why don't you do something profitable with all of this instead of spending all of your time doing this? His wife, Bridget, also becomes a character in this. And Richard says, well, the one thing that's kept me from doing this is that my good friend, Titan Leeds, publishes an almanac. However, looking at the astronomical tables, it's clear that on October 17th of 1733, Titan Leeds is going to die. Now, Titan and I have discussed this, and his charts say he'll live until the 26th of October. Uh, but 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In either case, he's going to be dead, and therefore someone should publish an almanac. People read this, and the way he presents this, and throughout the almanac, there are little squibs, little funny sayings, as well as some uh, good sense sayings. This is a joy to read, and people think this is really funny. So this edition of the almanac sells out, and people think it's hilarious. Well, one person who doesn't think it's hilarious is Titan Leeds, and his next edition of the almanac says that Richard Saunders is a fool. A buffoon. How could anyone say that someone predicts someone else is going to die? Well, the next edition of Poor Richard's Almanac says, this proves that Titan Leeds is actually dead. Because my dear friend Titan Leeds would never call anyone a fool and use such abusive language. This is proof that there's an imposter running Titan Leeds' Almanac. This edition of the Almanac goes through three editions in two days. So he's using Titan as promotion. A promotion, yeah, a foil. Here is this guy everyone's afraid of, and he's making fun of him. It seems like there were, the language was much richer then, which allows for more wit. Yeah. Yes? It does. It were does. people just, they were different then. Mm -hmm. Is it just the language, or is there, were they more witty? Or was Franklin just at the top of the, the wit master pile? Yeah, it I wasn't think Franklin everyone probably was. Not like was. That. Franklin probably was. And you think how few people from today with wit will remain in 200 years or 300 years. And, you know, some, some, we look at these people who are at the top and we imagine that everyone in the 1500s was a Shakespeare or everyone right. in the 18, 1700s was a Franklin when, in fact, there was only one of each. And so, um, you know, you read through much of the prose. I mean, if Titan Leeds were our only example from the 18th century, we would probably feel more reassured about our day that, you know, there are a lot more Titan Leeds around in any era than Franklin's. So Franklin became more concerned with doing good for the community. Yes. And he, he instituted a group called Junto or Junto? Junto. Junto, Junto yeah. Group of guys, group of young apprentices, tradesmen. And, you know, so they're all working. He's a printer. That is, it's a manual occupation. You know, a friend who makes glass. Uh, another friend who works with brass. So they're guys who work with their hands, but also they have minds. And so they will meet together every week, and they do collect their books together, and they'll discuss various issues. Interestingly enough, it's an idea he gets from Cotton Mather. Cotton Mather had created groups of young people in Boston to think about ways to improve the community. And in fact, the Junto every week would ask about what are things we can improve in this community, which is something that Mather had his groups asking. So he's very much doing what Cotton Mather had proposed doing back in Boston. But yeah, this group, they start a little library because they realize if each if we have access to everyone's books, then it'll help all of us. And this ultimately becomes the library company of Philadelphia. So it's one of the first libraries in the country. You also start a fire insurance company. Right. I was going to get into fire prevention. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. the fire truck. Yeah, the fire trucks. Can, yeah. you, can you get into how that came about? Yeah, because uh, it's a danger in any community. You, especially a place where the buildings are close together. And what the fire companies could do is usually pull a place down so that the fire didn't spread. Uh, but actually organizing these companies and having people pay a little into it every year as a way of, because um, you know, it's expensive to put out fires, but it does benefit everyone. So he really is in many ways the father of fire insurance in this country. And if you go around Philadelphia, you see a lot of the older buildings have the insignia from they were part of a fire insurance company, you know, instead of having the firefighters show up. And if there were rival fire companies, they would fight over who got to put out the fire because then they would get paid. Well, if you make this a more cooperative arrangement, they'll not be fighting each other, but they'll be fighting the fire. And, of course, electricity. Electricity, yes. Why did he spend time with the key and the kite? How okay. did he get to that point? That's, yeah, that's a good question. 
because it is really what makes him into an international celebrity. There were other people messing around with what they called the electrical fluid. They're trying to figure out what this is. Why you walk across a carpet in the winter, you touch a doorknob, you get a shock. Why, you know, you can uh, rub a balloon in your hair and it sticks to the wall. And what is this? And he comes to Boston in 1743, and there's a Scottish doctor named Archibald Spencer. And Spencer, Boston, by the way, did not allow plays. They thought this was immoral. So what there would be would be moral lectures. And Dr. Spencer did a moral lecture on how to cure diseases of the eye using electrical fluid. And what he would do is suspend a small boy from the air horizontally, and he would rub a glass tube with a piece of wool and then touch the boy's feet with the tube, and sparks would shoot out of the boy's eye. Now, we don't know if this actually cured anyone's diseases of the eye, but you can imagine it's a pretty cool, interesting can, thing. Can you really see. do that? Oh, yeah, yeah, would really do that. Uh, we could demonstrate it right now for the viewers at home, listeners at home, but... Um, Actually, the doctor who started this was a guy in England who happened to live next door to an orphan asylum where there was a steady supply of small boys for a few uh, pence would be suspended from the ceiling, have sparks shoot out of your eyes. Franklin sees this apparatus and is really fascinated. He buys it all from Dr. Spencer, and Spencer then goes on to practice medicine in Maryland. And Franklin takes all of this home to Philadelphia and starts experimenting with it. And he gets a group of friends together to experiment with the electrical fluid doing different things with it. And so they'll spend all winter doing these experiments. And then what Franklin does is write down what they did, essentially doing protocols, how you do these things, what the results are, so someone else can replicate them. It's really applying a scientific method. Is this the very beginning of the scientific method? It is. It is actually okay. the very beginning because there's a group in there's groups in Germany doing this. In fact, there are some Germans who do the electrical KISS and Franklin's group, every year they'll conclude their experiments by having a party on the banks of the Schuylkill River. And one thing they do is send an electrical charge under the river. They have a barrel of spirits on the other side, which it sets on fire. And they're doing all of this with the electrical fluid. Franklin does also electrocutes a turkey and discovers you can actually cook a turkey using electricity. And he coins different terms that we still use. For example, a thing you use to store an electrical charge, he calls a battery. And there is a, you know, some charges, another word he coins is charge, um, attract and others repel. He calls this positive and negative. And this group of guys who experiment with the electrical fluid, he calls electricians. And he talks about charging, discharging, and so Franklin is writing this down, and it's published in England as the Philadelphia Experiments. And he also hypothesizes that perhaps electricity is contained in everything. There's really thinking about this is what is the force that holds the world together? And they're all great Newtonians. That is, Franklin almost met Sir Isaac Newton. And so he knows about Newton's work, and he thinks electricity might be this force holding everything together. Therefore, it is in everything, and possibly it's also in clouds, which contain electricity, and lightning is actually the similar to the sparks we see here. And he thinks, his hypothesis is, if you had a church steeple tall enough, you could put a sentry box on top of it, run an iron rod up from the sentry box, and then have a wire coming down from that. The sentry then, when clouds that are charged with electricity go over, the rod would attract the electricity, and you could collect it into one of these Leyden jars, a jar that a Dr. Muschenbroek in Leyden, Holland, had created. And Franklin, in fact, names it a Leyden jar. His problem in Philadelphia, there aren't any church steeples that tall. He does subscribe to a fund to build a bigger church steeple for Christ Church. I don't think he tells the pastor why he's contributing to build the steeple. Plenty of church steeples in Boston, but he's not in Boston. He's in Philadelphia. Now, meanwhile... In, he's written this protocol in his little thing about electricity that was published in London and then translated into French. And so there is a French um, science philosopher, natural philosopher, who wants to try this out. There's another French natural philosopher who did things like have a 200 monks stand in a ring holding hands, and the ring is about a mile in um, circumference, 
put a shock in one and all of them jump simultaneously. So there are different experiments going on with electricity. Good time. It would be interesting to see 100 yeah. monks, 200 monks jump at the same time. Yes. Now, there's another French scientist who wants to prove that Newton is right. And, of course, the um, great French scientist is, um, I think, therefore, I am um, the fellow who coined that particular phrase. Rene Descartes. Rene Descartes, and he has a different theory about vortices. Okay, so um, this French guy builds a basically an iron tower that will do the same thing as the sentry box to try out the Philadelphia experiment, and it works. The tower, the, this iron tower lights up when the electricity goes over it. There are a couple of Germans doing the same thing. They've read the book by this guy in Philadelphia. Maybe we do have church steeples. Let's try this out. So they're doing this in Europe in the summer of 1752. Meanwhile, Franklin is thinking, I don't have a church steeple. He doesn't know this, these experiments are going right. on there. So he thinks, if I had a kite that was, could get up high enough, if uh, you see the clouds gathering, um, maybe we could try this out. So Franklin and his son, his son now is in his 20s, try this out one morning when they don't, no one else is around because, you know, you're a guy in his 20s with your father who's in his 40s. and You're, you're going doing to weird fly. stuff. It's weird stuff. You're flying a kite when it looks like there's going to be a thunderstorm. Yeah. And if it doesn't work, it's going to look really foolish. So William is actually the one who gets the kite up in the air and gets it to fly. Then Benjamin takes the um, string and they have, uh, it's a silk kite, and they have a key hanging from the string, too. And they get it up, and they wait. Nothing really happens. And so he's thinking, boy, this is a dud, and it just is starting to rain. And, um, boy, this we're really glad they didn't tell anyone, hey, you know what we're going to go try to do? We're going to try to fly a kite and see if uh, clouds can get right. electricity. And then he notices all the fibers on the string are sticking straight out, that there's clearly something happening with the kite string. And it's getting a little bit wet, too. And then he sticks his knuckle up toward the key, and a spark comes from the key to his knuckle. So the kite has attracted the electrical charge. I and mean, it wasn't that the kite was struck by lightning, but... There is clearly something in the clouds that then is being transmitted through the string to his knuckle, and then he takes his laden jar and starts collecting the electricity into the elect into the laden jar. That's what I don't understand. Is is that a, in effect a battery? It is effective. Well, a collection of laden jars would be a battery. Okay. You know, one of them is going to hold some of the charge. And one of the things they did, a laden jar would be a glass jar with some kind of a lead foil uh, coating around it, and then a cork and a stopper in the top, and you would put uh, water inside it. And then their question was, and this is how Dr. Mushenbrook did it. And then the question was, well, is the charge actually in the water or is it in the jar? And so they actually figured out a way to decant the water and then see if the charge was still in the jar, and it was. So the charge isn't really in the water at all. You don't need anything in the jar. You can just have the charge is actually in the um, lead. And it, it involves, I'm not a scientist, as anyone who's listening to this who knows the least smallest thing about science is probably aware by now. This isn't something I'm really good at explaining. But you have the charge, and the uh, cork has a wire coming out of it. And if you connect that wire with the, t the lead foil on it, that's where you're going to get the spark. That's how you know it held the charge. That's right, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the Leyden jar is just a jar. Later on, by the way, he does go to, uh, Lund go to uh, Holland and meets Dr. Muschenbrook, and Dr. Muschenbrook is so excited at meeting the great Dr. Franklin that he dies of a heart attack a week later. And so Franklin, um, you know, does have this experiment. Never really writes about it till some years later. But meanwhile, people in Europe have done it. And they've demonstrated it using the Philadelphia Protocol by, doc by Benjamin Franklin. He's not Dr. Franklin yet. And the next year, he receives the Copley Medal, which is the highest award for science in the English-speaking world given by the Royal Society. And he is the first person who does not live in Britain to receive this. Also the first person who's not a member of the Royal Society to receive it. 
It is such a great experiment. Immanuel Kant. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hunt says that Franklin is the Prometheus of the modern age. And this is a tremendous thing, demonstrating that electricity is up in the clouds and it's in the earth it's everywhere and it can be contained but your second question what can we do with this yeah did he, he never really that at all he didn't he's care. always disappointed the one thing he figures out is yeah. if you could put a lightning rod on a house and have a wire that runs into the ground you can spare the house from being burned down in fact he creates this little demonstration house and sends one of his a circle as a baptist minister who goes out on a lectured circuit with this little demonstration house he charges up a laden jar and then touches it to the wire on the house, and you see the charge harmlessly goes into the ground. And then next time he does it, he has a little plug in the side of the house, takes that out, and that takes away the continuous circuit right. that's going to take the charge into the ground. The house is actually packed with gunpowder, so it touches the laden jar to it. The charge goes in and blows up the house. So do you want your house to have a lightning rod or don't you want your house to have a lightning these? rod? He does. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, he does this demonstration and this sells huh. lightning rods. And Franklin's kind of disappointed that's all you get out of it. He thinks there must be something more you could do with electricity. 18th century can't really figure that he, out. Turns out he was right. He was right. Here we are. Yes. I suppose we should get to France because yes. um, that's an important part of Franklin's life and legacy. Why did he go to France and stay eight years? He goes to France in 1776 to get the king of France to support the Americans in the war for independence. That is the diplomatic mission. What year? 1776. Okay. So it's just uh, December. So it's just he's some... gone for the whole thing. He is gone. Well, he's there. He is the chief American diplomat in France. And he goes because he is an international celebrity. He knows people in the scientific world in France. So he meets Voltaire while he is in France. In fact, Voltaire wants to meet Dr. Franklin. And everyone knows him. In fact, he is received as a celebrity. He tells his daughter that my face is more familiar than that of the man in the moon. They print up images of Franklin and little figurines of Franklin are sold. And ladies in Paris really come to love Franklin. And he's, I mean, he is an international celebrity. He is the great Dr. Franklin who represents America. He represents American simplicity. I mean, in France was a highly refined, great style. Franklin appears, he doesn't wear a wig. He just wears this kind of simple costume. A lot of people think he's a Quaker. He's like the guy on the Quaker Oats box, but he's not a Quaker. He is really playing He looks like a backwoods this. guy. He is. He's really playing this up. I mean, this bald guy you know, in his late 70s, coming to France, and um, the great American philosopher from the backwoods, the simple American who is really very smart. And also, he is fighting against England, the arch enemy of France. Right. And he does get the king to agree to support the United States in the war for independence. It took a long, long time, correct? It did. 1778 is when the king agrees to the treaty with the United States. And then negotiations will begin with Great Britain. So he is part of the negotiating team along with John Jay and John Adams to get the British to agree to this treaty. A complicated thing because Spain and France are also fighting against England and Congress had said, don't agree to anything without our good allies, the French. Franklin realizes, as anyone would, that France really has its own agenda here and the United States really has to look out for itself. Something Ad Adams also was Sure, Franklin was, the duplicitous Franklin was selling us out to just about anyone, but he's very cagey in what he is doing on behalf of the United States. So the French had an interest in having the, the revolution last long because it was bleeding their enemies, the English, dry. Yeah, but more importantly, it was actually bleeding the French dry, too. The French spend a lot to support the Americans, and France winds up going bankrupt. And there's a revolution in France because of that. 
Yeah, but it would be their interest to defeat the English, but more importantly, um, to try to get, maybe get Canada back, uh, maybe get Louisiana back. I mean, France had its own interests here. And he gets some visitors. Why Why did uh, John Adams and Abigail? Abigail went. Abigail goes to France. Yeah. Yes. Because John is going to be part of the one of the American commissioners to negotiate. When Abigail first saw Benjamin Franklin, it was in Cambridge in 1775. Franklin comes up to meet with Washington, and they have kind of a dinner party. A number of local dignitaries come, including Abigail Adams. And she writes to John how struck she was with Dr. Franklin. She says, I've always been taught to venerate Dr. Franklin, and seeing him really struck her. And she said, he had the face of a Christian and the manner of a patriot. I mean, she just loves Franklin, even though he doesn't say a word at this particular gathering. But do we know where that was, this, this gathering? Is the there, house, the house the Longfellow it? House. At the oh, Long, it was, it's okay. now the Longfellow House, yeah, which was Washington's headquarters. Think about it, in that house... Washington met Benjamin Franklin, he met Benedict Arnold, he met uh, Henry Knox. I mean, this was really the gathering place. William Martin, the novelist, always says, if there's ever a time when walls come alive and can speak, he wants to be in that room to hear what had happened in the um, dining room of the Longfellow House, Longfellow Washington headquarters. Well, I'm glad I interrupted them to to hear that. Washington, so Franklin um, is a venerated figure, and then Abigail gets to Paris, and she is just shocked. Ha- Franklin tells her, you're going to meet one of the finest women in France, Madame Helvetius, who is a, the widow of a French philosopher. And Franklin actually wants to marry Madame Helvetius, who has a circle of monks who are part of her intellectual circle. And Franklin wants to marry her. She keeps rebuffing him. And Abigail describes this scene where this woman, basically wearing a negligee, an elderly woman wearing a negligee, comes in talking about, Franklin, Franklin, you didn't tell me you had visitors. And this woman has a little dog who uh, pees on everything. And she picks the dog up and holds him in her lap, even though the dog is peeing on her. And Madame Helvetius is oblivious <laughs> to this. It's horrific. Abigail, Abigail is just shocked at this. And, she, and this woman, you know, barely dressed, comes up and kisses Franklin, throws herself on his lap. And um, Abigail says, this isn't one of the best women in France. This is one of the worst. And if this is the best woman of France, then she shudders to think what the others are like. Uh, so it's really Franklin's seemingly dissolute morals that get her. But you think Franklin at this time is practically 80. He has gout. He has kidney stones. and He just doesn't care anymore. He doesn't care he's anymore. Been there and eight he's, years. Has he, has he sunk into this decadent? Well, has he become one of them? He's playing a role, I think, because he knows the way you get anything done in France is through the influence of these women who hang around the French court. So he is flirting with them, we think, as a way, really, of getting things done in the French government. Madame Brion, another of the women with whom he is very fond. In fact, he does want to have an affair with Madame Brion, who keeps rebuffing him. Maybe someday we'll have a talk about Franklin and the Me Too movement. But Madame Brion's husband is an official in the French government. And so the way you do things is through... um, Flirting with the ladies around the French court. There is actually another French woman when Franklin does suggest uh, perhaps we could spend a night together. Um, she says, oh, yes, let's do that. And then he immediately steps back and says, well, madame, uh, it's winter. T- it's summertime when the nights are short. Why don't we wait till winter when the nights are longer? She called his bluff. He does. Yeah, she does call his bluff. And then he immediately retracts. So... John and Abigail are really, and also John, um, the Adamses also thought, and this gets a little complicated, the previous American diplomat was a fellow named Silas Dean, and Dean had made an agreement with Beaumarchais, who was a French playwright, about shipping weapons to the Americans. They set up a dummy corporation that's going to do this. Now, Beaumarchais was doing this with the understanding that the Americans were going to pay for these things, which was also Dean's understanding. And then when Dean starts submitting receipts to Congress, Congress says, well, wait a minute, we thought these were gifts. We don't want to pay for this. What's Dean trying to do? He's trying to profiteer. So there's actually an investigation in Congress by 
uh, led by uh, Richard Henry Lee, who's an ally of Samuel Adams, who think that Dean must be a crook. And what are the French trying to do? Remember also, the Adamses being New England Protestants would have been really wary of French Catholics. So there's this deep-seated, long-standing distrust of the French here. And because Franklin seems to be on the side of the French, he seems to be part of this. So, uh, And also Richard Henry Lee, the congressman from Virginia's brother, Arthur, is in Europe. And Arthur is a... Um, he had been in London before. Now he's in France. And Arthur seems to be insane and writes letters about how Franklin is corrupt and Franklin is a terrible guy. They and figured that Franklin had gone native. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a thinking, what's he up to? And he has these really harsh critics, Arthur Lee being one. And then Ralph Izard, who is from South Carolina. And Izard had been sent to be the American diplomat in Tuscany, but Tuscany doesn't want him. So he's hanging around France, and Izard wants to be part of the negotiations with the French. And Franklin writes a satirical piece, uh, the petition of the letter Z. In fact, they called Izard Z. And Z wants to be higher up in the alphabet. And Z doesn't think like the fact that words like Y's are spelled with an S rather than a Z. Z wants to be more important. It's one way of Franklin not... A, and he writes a letter to Arthur Lee when Arthur Lee says, how come you haven't answered my letter? And Lee, Lee writes letters that are very long. It's kind of like a, a professor coming on your show and talking for an hour and a half. I mean, these are the long letters he gets from Arthur Lee. And Lee wants to know, why haven't you answered my letters? And Franklin writes back and says, don't answer your letters because I'm old and I don't like to be bothered with this kind of nonsense. <laughs> he says, you really, should get, you really should get help for your problems. And, so how long did the Adams estate? Did they just hightail it out of there as quickly as No, they stayed, they they stayed there like actually year? until... Uh, 1780, after the peace treaty was signed, and John and Abigail go to London, where John is the first American ambassador to Great Britain. Folks thought that Ben would stay there forever. His friends thought forever, he would stay for the rest of his life. Yeah. So it's, he's 79 years old when he returns to America. And in fact, the king and queen loan him a palanquin, actually this riding chair, to transport him, because his kidney stones are really severe, to the port in France, along with... Um, a barge carrying all of the stuff he's accumulated in his years in France that is also shipped back to Philadelphia, to the house that he and Deborah had built back in the early 1760s, and he and Deborah never lived in it together. She lived there for the last eight years of her life, died in it, and then he comes back briefly in 1785, 80, 1775, 76, and then he goes back to France. And now his daughter and her family are living in the house. And he comes back now. He's you know, almost 80. And he's almost immediately made the president of Pennsylvania. And then in 1787, he is appointed one of the delegates to the convention that's going to draw up the Constitution. So he comes back old, ill, and is still called into public service. And what may be, in fact, the most important public service he performs, helping to draw up the Constitution. And I think maybe we should leave that for another day to come and talk about the Constitution. We'll run through the different founders, and we can talk about all okay. of these aspects of the American founding. In like 30 seconds, why did he come back? He didn't come back for that service. He probably didn't want that service. Yeah. Why, after all that time and fun, did he come back? He thought it was time to go home. And he writes to um, the American Minister for Foreign Affairs, talking about the prophet Samuel, let me now depart in peace. That is, he felt he had accomplished his mission. He wanted to come home. Perfect. I want to remind folks about the series that you have the the yes. uh, CDD the teaching company. The yes. Can you explain it again? The age of Benjamin Franklin is twenty four half hour lectures about the life of Franklin and the world Franklin lived in. So there's one on Franklin and women, Franklin and Native Americans, Franklin and in, in France, Franklin and science. I mean, different aspects of his life. Beautiful. All right, thank you. I hope you'll come back real soon. Thank you, Bradley. Right. That was another Jay Talking Podcast. If you loved what you heard, like and review the show. It helps others find us. Subscribe to the Jay Talking Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and never miss an episode. Follow me on Twitter for show updates. And as always, you can catch the show live every weeknight starting Sunday, midnight to five 
on WBZ Boston's News Radio. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.